Hi, and welcome to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today for episode 396, my guest is Alan Farrington. Now, this show is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, and Swan Bitcoin is organizing a conference. It's called Pacific Bitcoin. It will be on November 10th and 11th this year in LA, California. So this one is going to be the biggest Bitcoin-only conference ever. Hang out with thousands of Bitcoiners from around the globe. Catch your favorite Bitcoiners all around the place, whether they're on the main stage, or you're chatting with them in the side areas of the conference. There'll be events going on throughout the week and Pacific Bitcoin is going to be optimized for fun with sports, games, music, photo opportunities and high fives. This will just be one component of the overall LA Bitcoin week, which will be filled with educational opportunities, meetups, co-working and parties throughout the week. So come along and bring your new coin of friends so they can soak up the vibes and the educational aspects about Bitcoin. The website is pacificbitcoin.com and use the code Lavera to get a discount on your ticket. Now, for those of you who are Bitcoin and Lightning builders, Voltage is constructing the leading enterprise-grade Lightning solution for Bitcoin builders for anyone building the future of financial technology and Layer 2 applications. Nowadays, if you want to integrate Lightning, it doesn't have to be an afterthought. Voltage can make it really hassle-free for you. Now, this can be applicable for you whether you want to scale nodes instantly by the thousands or whether you just want to be a merchant and set up to take payment with Bitcoin and the Lightning network. With Voltage, you can get quality liquidity easily, and what was once a headache is now simplified. You can get up and running in two minutes by visiting voltage.cloud. Are you looking for Bitcoin hardware devices to help secure your stack? Coldcard is my favorite hardware signing device. This is available over at coinkite.com. Now, the Coldcard looks like a little calculator, and you can use it in all kinds of different configurations, whether that is a single signature configuration for beginners where you just directly plug it into your computer and you use it with wallets like Sparrow or Spectre Desktop or Electrum. Now, you might be more intermediate or advanced and you're looking for ways to use it with a passphrase or using it as part of a multi-signature setup with a provider or doing your own multi-signature. The cold card is such a versatile tool that you can do this. Now, there's a new version out, the Mark IV, which has a faster processor, two secure elements, and NFC support. So to get yours, go to coinkite.com and use the code Levera for a discount there. So for those of you who don't know, Alan Farrington has been investing professionally and has been around the Bitcoin space, and he is also a writer and author. So he joins me and we talk about various concepts related to Austrian economics and Bitcoin capital, as well as critiques of altcoin DeFi and where is the yield coming from? I think these are important questions for us to analyze and think about. And I think Alan has a really interesting perspective to share on these things, as well as perspectives on what it looks like as Bitcoin grows. So here's my conversation with Alan. Alan, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. So Alan, I'm a fan of your work. I've been reading some of your articles and I've been reading Bitcoin is Venice. Uh, I can't say I finished the book. I'm probably about 70, 75% of the way through, but uh, really enjoying it so far. Do you want to know something funny about that, actually? So uh, I haven't read it. So if that makes you feel any better, <laughs> just just because of, because of the way that we we wrote it. So so me and Sasha wrote this over. Well, it depends how you even define it, but like solid writing with a book in mind probably like four to six months over last summer. But it was written in very much like a piecemeal way. And then, you know, we put a lot of effort into trying to make sure it was it strung together nicely because obviously almost all of it was originally standalone essays. 
And uh, the, <laughs> the first person to ever actually read it properly was Alex Gladstein. Did the forward, yeah. To then write the foreword for it. And then I think when Sasha and I both went to Miami, Sasha panicked and was like, oh shit, I haven't read my own book and people are going to ask me about it. This is so embarrassing. So he, he bought one because we also, I don't even own one, right? So we, we both <laughs> bought it. Um, but he, he brought it to Miami with him and he read the entire thing in one sitting on the flight so that he was prepared for anything that followed. I still haven't read it. Oh, I'm so probably you're unprepared. Read it. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah the, I'm just I'm getting this in now so that I can say I don't know to every question. Like, sorry, yeah, yeah. I just no, no, that's cool. Next. But let's let's get into uh, you know how you got into you know as, as I uh, understand from your background, you've been a professional investor, um, but also obviously have an interest in economics and obviously an interest in Bitcoin. So, do you want to tell us a little bit about where your interest in this? In, in economics and, and these topics came from? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, it's good that you framed it that way because I feel like I have a an especially boring sort of Bitcoiner baptism. Like a lot of people have far more entertaining stories of, you know, the, the moment that the penny dropped for them or like some weird circumstance they were in where it just all clicked into place. Whereas for me, it was, it was a very, very slow burn. And actually, I, I feel like I, I'm very grateful in a way almost not to anybody or to almost like to the universe, if that makes sense, that the, the circumstances that I was in and the experiences that I had had and so on, and I'll go through these in just a minute, but they were almost perfect to, I'd say, take Bitcoin seriously, obviously not like immediately understand it and be like, oh my God, this is the greatest thing ever. Because, you know, the, the lot quote that, or actually it's not a quote, it's an entire essay, but I think the title of it is that nobody understands Bitcoin and that's okay. So I'm not claiming that I, you know, I immediately got it, but the handful of experiences that were relevant for me. So I think I first encountered Bitcoin in about 2013. I don't remember exactly when, but 2013 or 2014. And even at that point, so I was studying math and philosophy as an undergrad at the time. So that's, both of those are obviously very helpful in their own way. The only like real job, sort of adult job I'd had that wasn't just like, you know, working in a burger shop for minimum wage kind of thing uh, was as a software engineer, uh, which I was really bad at actually, but it was a valuable experience. Uh, That's obviously super helpful for this too. Um, and I'd also run a business or as in like started a business and run a business when I was in uni and it, it was terrible. I just lost loads of money. And uh, the, the way I tend to talk about it since in like any context other than this one, like as explaining why it's relevant for Bitcoin is that, you know, it played really well in job interviews. It's like a solid addition to your CV. Um, but no, it was terrible as business. Uh, but it was very valuable for my, I guess, personal development. I'm not trying to sound too cringy about that, but I mean, that is kind of why it's good on your CV in the first place. But that then gave me an added appreciation for, uh, I guess you'd say Austrian economics. I know this is something you're very, very well versed in. I'm sure we'll get into this in more detail. I have a slight issue with describing it that way though, because I almost feel like it shouldn't really require that label. Like to me, the core of the Austrian school, it just is economics and like almost everything else is bullshit. Oh, of course. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, so, you, know, I, you know, that's where the term came from, right? So the term oh, Austrian. Oh, I, I know the story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, your listeners yeah. might know though, so go on. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, as at least as I understand the story, it was basically, it was like the German school yeah. and they were sort of frowning and looking down on, they were saying, oh, that's Austrian economics kind of yeah. thing. And so then it, it sort of became more 
you know, uh, it became known as that. And of course, nowadays, the paradigms shifted over time, right? So what became known as the neoclassical and the Keynesian schools of thought became the dominant ways of thinking. Like if you go to university, mm. chances are you're learning from a neoclassical or a Keynesian economist. So yeah. that was just the, yeah. the paradigm. And so what people use now is the term Austrian just to kind of I guess, call back to what are we really doing here? Yeah. What's the method? Yeah. And that's kind of the Misesian praxeological method. It's kind of, it's a bit like Maxi in a way. It's, it's sort of came about in a similar, like, you know, reclaimed originally an insult <laughs> yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Because it was originally an insult. You're right. Yeah. It was the, the economics school at the University of Vienna, which is everyone who was kind of gathered around Karl Menger, who basically just made it, made all of this up. Or I shouldn't say made up because it's all true, but like, independently you know contributed to the marginal revolution in the way that then developed on a very different track to the other um to what came from jevons and balrat and uh but yeah the the german i, I think they're now they, they tend to be referred to as the historical so. school but that it's not all that relevant to this particular i guess anecdote and that they're basically just status like they were chartalists they were their 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 preoccupation in particular the issue they had with Menger was that they were proposing the state theory of money. And he obviously wasn't. And that's where the whole on the origins of money even comes from. That was Menger like rising to this channel. Right. Anyway. So yeah, Austrianism is awesome. I just wish it, <laughs> wish it didn't even have that label in the first place. But okay. So what's interesting about this though, is that I think probably most people listening to this show, many, maybe not all Bitcoiners, but are at least aware of this, if they don't kind of, if they don't have a, a I guess an academic bent and explicitly identify with it. But for me, it was almost exactly the other way around, right? So what I mean by that is for most Bitcoiners, especially actually if they have some formal training in non-Austrian economics, I guess you would call it, and they like they go through the whole thing, kind of sure it doesn't really make any sense, but they're never quite able to put their finger on it. Then they get to Bitcoin. They're like, well, this obviously makes sense. And that crap I learned obviously doesn't. Then they get to Austrianism and they're like, aha, finally, I have a framework for explaining this. Whereas for me, it was completely the other way around. It was that it was the combination of just having read this stuff anyway, but being predisposed to it, being or being disproportionately predisposed to it by running a business. Because that's another thing, right? That if you, it's a very similar experience. If you run a business and you're like vaguely familiar with non-Austrian economics, you, you just know it's bullshit. You, and you might not even be able to articulate why, but you just know because nothing that you're experiencing lines up at all so i had that as a background then i encountered bitcoin so basically by the time i got to bitcoin i had meaningful exposure to computer science but well engineering i guess i had a i had a slight academic interest in it as well but you know things that actually work right building software not just ideas like building things that needed to work then the more abstract side with the math and the philosophy and the experience of running a business and the austrianism and it was basically perfect it was uh, and again doesn't mean i understood it but meant that I took it seriously in a way that, I mean, goodness, this is almost like 10 years ago now, I guess, like eight or nine years ago, I think has paid off well. I'm glad I took Bitcoin seriously when I did. <laughs> yeah, of course. And I think there's so many different angles that if you have studied and read the Austrians, you are more prepared to appreciate Bitcoin. So one of them is this idea that a lot of people suffer from this idea that 
the money supply has to expand along with the economy because right because they'll get into this idea and this even came up recently with uh, I think Jeff Snyder's interview with uh, Peter McCormack on what Bitcoin did because he was saying quote unquote mm. you need some elasticity of money and and then yeah. of course you know you can't expect people to fully agree with everything you say but that's probably the moment that a lot of the Austrian thinkers are like just cringing. You know, you know, I only, I only found out quite recently where this came from. I don't, you, you probably know this too, but again, your listeners might not. So I, I, I've like, you know, hated this. It's more just like, not, I don't really have any anger towards it. I'm just like mystified as to why people believe this. But it, until quite recently, it never occurred to me to think about where it actually came from. And so I asked on Twitter, like, does anybody know where this 2% inflation target, like, because it's a meme, right? It's like, who originated this meme? And there's a good article on, uh, I think it's uh, Mises.org uh, from not too long ago, maybe like 2017 or so. We should dig it up and you can like put it in the show notes um, that many people independently pointed to that does actually explain this. And it, I, I was kind of right in my instinct that it literally was just a meme. It was made up by not the, I forget the exact terminology of like these people's job titles, not, not the head of the Australian Central Bank, but somebody working in the Australian Central Bank, like some quite senior figure um, who had a quasi-political role as well. And the reason he came up with it was to craft a PR campaign around tackling inflation, which is like, that's just hilarious when you put that fully in context, right? It's, you know, at the time, I think this was like in the late 80s and inflation in Australia was, you know, officially CPI inflation. Uh, was you know high single digits, low double digits, and they needed like a, a campaign. You know they need a message, like a, a, a PR spin to put on what they're doing about it. And they just made up. It's like, well, this is too high, but you know, two percent is good. Better could than disagree this, with percent, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that's literally where like that is now. That meme has been so incredibly viral. I guess so effective that the the same kinds of people now say it having no idea where it comes from and no idea what the original reasoning or like lack of reasoning was and they now say it as if it's you know dogmatically axiomatically true <laughs> and it's just like some guy just made it up for pr it's it's amazing oh the other thing i should add by the way um i i stumbled into this recently too it was on the same sort of uh, train of exasperation on Twitter. The best, or I think the best way, because I only realized this quite recently, to counter what you have to admit is an incredibly effective viral meme is to, to reframe it as follows. So, so what that means, if you really believe this, that you, know, you need 2% inflation to, the argument is usually to stimulate growth, right? Because otherwise people won't be adequately incentivized to invest uh, and, and accumulate capital. And it's, it's like sneakily wrapped up in like actually being a capitalistic argument, even though it's clearly not. The way you challenge this, the way I like to challenge it, is you just say to someone, like, ignore money, like, just get money out of the picture. Because the sense in which we're talking about it, the, even the sense in which that ridiculous idea is conveyed, uh, money is really just performing a kind of informational role, right? It's about incentives, it's not about uh, trade, let's say. Um, so just get money out of the picture and just think in terms of time, right? So what you, person proposing this theory, are telling me is that you would be insufficiently incentivized to do something, just whatever, just it's something that you enjoy or actually spare if you don't enjoy it, something that's like a chore, but needs to be done, something productive <laughs> that will help yourself in the long run, right? You're not going to be appropriately, sufficiently incentivized to do it 
unless you know, for whatever reason, that if you were to wait a year to do it, it would take you 2% longer. Like there's no way you're going to do it now unless somebody can demonstrate that to you. And like no one would ever therefore do anything because like, why would you? You need to, you know, it, it might take you less time in the future. So you'll just wait and you'll not do it. And like time doesn't matter. Your wants don't matter. Subjective value doesn't matter. Like nothing matters other than this incentive of like, you need to be lied to by the state. Basically, the state needs to, you know, put its thumb on the scales of how information is being conveyed and convince you that if you don't do it right now, you're screwed. Right. And the, there are different arguments you hear from the inflationists. And this is obviously the, you know, if you read on the typical news, they'll have all these different arguments. But I think if you try to trace it back, in some cases, it comes from this idea, what's not quote unquote, sticky wages. It's this argument that, oh, see, people mm. would not appreciate that their purchasing power has actually gone up. But this is the way to sort of keep now, I can't correctly paraphrase that full argument, but because I, I can't even quite understand it myself. I Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, so I think that is a slightly more sophisticated way to express this, but even that is pretty readily debunked. I think, I I think that where I, I like you, I should caveat this and saying I struggle to articulate it completely coherently because I think it's nonsense. So this isn't supposed to be like the best steel man ever or anything. But I think that the way that you counter that is by I guess disambiguating uh, different conceptions of what inflation means. So the most obvious one is just, do you mean the uh, the growth in the money supply versus what you see in consumer prices? I don't even mean exactly that, although what I'm getting at follows from correctly making that distinction. Um, what I think you need to appreciate is that actually, if you, if you want to measure it either way, I don't think it really matters, although it's more, it's maybe more helpful for this argument to measure the uh, or to have in mind the consumer prices, you you have to distinguish between this idea, this like just basically wrong idea of deflation as being this kind of force that acts on everything as if it's like economic gravity or something like that. It's what I, I love that Sailor came up with this. I think he came up with it on a Bitcoin podcast, actually. This idea of inflation, although this applies to many like macroeconomic nonsenses, but inflation being a metaphysical constant. Right. Or sorry, no, no, a metaphysical abstraction, as in the single number just like doesn't mean anything. It's it's it's, you know, not it's metaphysical. It's not physical. It's not observable in the real world. And it's an abstraction. So it doesn't actually apply to any individual circumstance, you know, any situation in which humans are acting. Right. And like creating um, any economic observable in the first place. So this idea that it's just a force that acts on everything it follows from the misunderstanding of it as being a metaphysical abstraction, as opposed to something that actually emerges from economic activity in the first place. And so I think this is very readily cleared up by realizing that if we had sound money, right, if we didn't have this nonsense tipping of the scales, 2% inflation, everybody must be lied to you know, do anything productive, lied to to do anything productive. You would expect to see, it, well, deflation, where productivity is increasing. It's not just that all prices everywhere go down and then all of a sudden you're like, oh shit, we have to fire people because wages are sticky. Like that's just not how this would happen. It would happen where people are more productive in the first place because they have greater access to capital, blah, 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 right? You know, from that point on, it's straightforward. But I, I don't think that actually gets you to the sticky wages objection, even though it is admittedly more sophisticated. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, th I also wanted to touch on the um, capital 
aspect with you. So this is an area you touch on in the book and, you know, you talk about this and I think it's also, uh, obviously we're going to get into the, where does the yield come from? I want to talk about that too, because uh, I really think that's, um, it's well worth discussing and getting people clearer minded about where real yield comes from and what's the Mm -hmm. issue with the so-called quote unquote DeFi yield. Um, but I, firstly, let's start with uh, the capital and your, I guess, your discussion about that. Sure. So, well, there, there's a couple of different ways that we talk about it in in the book. Um, I don't know if you want to be more specific in narrowing it down, or I can just kind of go completely off the top of my head. Yeah. Oh, well, as in, like, I think the interesting part that I recall from the book was mentioning how we can have more almost like intellectual forms of capital or non-physical forms of capital and even like software being capital in that sense because it makes oh, us yeah. more oh, productive. That's, that's one of my yeah. that's one of my favorite things to to spout off on. Yeah. I think I just find this fascinating. I'm I'm like genuinely surprised that I don't know, more economists or even sociologists, I suppose. It's not something that people talk about more as just being really, really interesting. So yeah, there's a whole bunch of things I can say about this. Uh, the, the first one I think is is just really important to appreciate. So you, I mean, aside from anything else, kind of understand what's going on around you in terms of how um, how business is now typically conducted. I think it's highly relevant for for Bitcoin as well in a number of different ways. Um, that the the most well, this is obviously kind of subjective on my part, but I think the most interesting form of capital today is software, um, and I think that might be. My, my interest in it is maybe somewhat circumstantial. I don't think it's like objectively more. I don't think that's really a meaningful thing to say, but it's entirely new the way that it functions. Like, I don't think there's ever really been a precedent for how it works before insofar as it has no raw materials. Uh, the, the only thing you can really credibly call a raw material, which is clearly not, I guess, a, an economic good is just the time and the, I guess, the effort, maybe the the opportunity cost of that time, I guess it makes some sense to talk about economically. So, so, so let me try and set the table a little bit here. So in general, I guess the way to think about it, there's probably three categories, right? So you, we have mm. consumer goods. These are things that we can consume right away, whether it's, you know, this water, this water bottle, mm. but then you also have capital goods, which are used to yeah. Yeah, yeah. create those consumer goods. And you have multiple stages and layers and then in the third category as Mises says money is sui generis yes, so yeah, it's kind yeah. of like you got consumer goods capital goods and money and then now we're in the realm of capital goods and we're talking about okay it's a computer or it's a printer or it's a you know something that i use to produce mm-hmm. things and so what you're getting at in the book as well is this idea that software is becoming a, a kind of capital and we're using it and maybe an analogy let's say even we were operating in a world without computers we could maybe look at it, it might be sort of like looking at a, a recipe book and being like, okay, this recipe is how you create this output. And okay, what are some of the inputs in a computer sense? Well, okay, you got CPU, hard drive space, mm-hmm. networking uh, capacity if it's if it's internet connected. But in some loose sense, it's like having a recipe to create this output, and people can yes, yeah, it's like a yeah. recipe for a machine rather than for a person, right? Which is which is really fascinating when you think about the like the applications of this. So to this, I agree. This is a more helpful framework to to think of it within, because usually if if you if you thought that there was some kind of economically relevant good that the only input was your time, it, you probably otherwise mean a service, right? 
And a service is just, I, I think almost by definition, is just consumed immediately. You know, it's, it's almost the act of trading it is its consumption. Whereas software is almost the exact opposite of this. It's creating the means of further production that will last, I mean, it could last forever. Basically, it's a recipe, right? It's, it's like, it's also in some sense, just knowledge that can be recycled and, and or recycled isn't exactly the right word, reused for productive ends. But I think the other thing is worth mentioning quickly, because this, this may be, I don't know, you might want to linger on the economic side for longer, but the, there's a fascinating connection to Bitcoin, I think, as well. But not in the sense of Bitcoin being software, but in kind of political terms, that the fact that this can be done, I think, I think this is already happening, but certainly as we, you know, as we go forward in the coming decades, this creates a kind of a, a political economy, I guess, in which software engineers are, they have wildly sort of disproportionate leverage over their uh, over their, their their politicians, basically over you know whoever's trying to claim political authority over them, because their means of generating capital, which probably previously, I mean, there's certainly anything that's at all followed from the industrial revolution, has required capital that's in almost every case highly immobile. Whereas you know you just as a human, if your <laughs> your means of generating capital is your own mind. You're highly mobile. You're almost like maximally mobile on any relevant conception of what that means. And you can, you know, you can therefore move away from any any political regime that you think is inadequately capitalistic, which is like this is very exciting. And then if you we don't have to get into this right now, but Bitcoin accelerates that for sure. Yeah, for sure. And I think what you're getting into as well is very aligned with ideas from, say, the sovereign individual. It's this idea oh, yeah, that yeah, yeah. because your productivity is now online and digital well you can move that elsewhere and you don't have to be living in a high cost of living place like the new yorks and the londons mm -hmm. of the world you can go somewhere cheap and just work online and i mean yeah. nowadays especially even if you're not well, not just yeah. cheap but like hospitable correct to, yeah uh you know to your political inclinations whatever they may be yeah exactly and i think there's there's something interesting about that of course it matters how many people are able to work remotely. And of course, more and more things are moving remote. Mm -hmm. Like you don't have to be a developer. You could even just be an entrepreneur and you're hiring people in yep. India or wherever. Yep. And people are doing that now. And so it's becoming really more like a global competition for labor, but also for entrepreneurs too. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what I meant in terms of uh, software being kind of the, the bridge to this now just exploding to, to all kinds of economic activity. Because I think the, the, the only link that you do have to acknowledge there is that every, every type of valuable work that can be done remotely can only be done remotely because we have this base of software that is allowing it in the first place. Correct, correct. And of course, with Bitcoin, it is really starting to open up that world of possibilities that you know, and and we mm -hmm. see this with a lot of Bitcoin companies. They are remote supporting. Generally, they are remote savvy. If some of them are remote only, yeah. I think there's um, with Bitcoin, there's well, at, at least that I can think of right now. There's two ways, two really interesting ways that Bitcoin affects this dynamic. One of them, I think, gets far more pressed than the other, though. Maybe just because it's more obvious, which is just that you can now pay people more easily. So that's obviously a major, like you know, uh, bottleneck, I guess, or, 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 well, roadblock. It's probably a better metaphor because bottleneck sort of implies it just makes it harder. It's previously basically impossible to do this with people who are sufficiently distributed across different like jurisdictions, you know, banking regimes, etc. It was just too hard to even bother doing this. Now it's trivial. Now it's like, 
you know, sending an email is basically the same thing. Just send them value. I think people understand that. And that's sort of obviously exciting. I think there's a, there's another element though, that is, I think is maybe more exciting, but it's a little more difficult to grasp. And it's that Bitcoin, the, the ability to not only be paid in Bitcoin, but kind of to, to save it, I guess. I may be drawing on something like the distinction between it being a store of value and just a, just a medium of exchange. Because if you get paid in Bitcoin, you might just sell it. And then, you know, you're like, you're kind of minimally involved with this exciting new dynamic if you do that. But I think what it allows, given it is obviously first and foremost, a store of value, is that it allows you to plan to be mobile, right? And especially, I know you said that this yeah. goes well beyond just on them specifically because i think the case is clearest for them that this this whole thing about oh the you know the the capital is now just in your head like you're able to generate the capital yourself and that gives you enormous bargaining power that's obviously true completely without bitcoin but you're only ever able to bargain over your uh your future output right and you're basically trading away your future output at a very, very high sort of valuation, if you like, like a premium to, you know, what anybody will pay you for this work. And so that's kind of abstract. What that tends to mean in practice is that um, if you want to, if you have a good enough idea, you start a company, you get funded and you get rich quite quickly if it provides enough value to people. The problem you have though is that that is still, in order for that to happen in the first place, that has to be rooted within a given financial system. And as soon as you make that trade, you you can't undo it. Like once you've sold the equity, it's gone. Bitcoin completely changes this because you have the same leverage in terms of the ability to just generate this capital, but you don't need to fund it that way. You don't need to enrich yourself by giving it away. You can merely get paid in Bitcoin and then go wherever you want, do whatever you want with that. You're, you're not at all tethered to any given financial regime. You may still want to, just to be clear, like that, that may seem like it's a good trade-off, but you have far, far more optionality in terms of how you can monetize this capital you're able to create. Back to the show in a moment. Now, the events at exchanges and lending platforms over the last few weeks have been an important reminder for us all with various platforms suspending withdrawals and others potentially having insolvency. And so you don't want to have your Bitcoin caught up in someone else's insolvency. Make sure you are using self-custody to store your coins on keys that you control. And Unchained Capital can help you with this because they've got a concierge onboarding. They can ship you the hardware, walk you through the setup, help you with withdrawals and answer your questions through that process. And there's even some ongoing support. So if you've been putting this off, this is now the time to get it done sooner than later. Go to unchained.com slash concierge and use the code Levera for a discount on your package. Those of you involved in Bitcoin mining, you've got to check out Brains. Brains can help you by giving you software, Brains OS Plus. You can install this software, which is custom firmware that you can install on various Bitcoin mining machines. So you want to go to the website, B-R-A-I-I-N-S.com and check out whether your mining machine model is supported. If it is, you're in luck because they can dramatically help you in terms of the efficiency of your machine. So you can increase the hash rate and basically get more sats for your electricity dollar or fiat that you're spending on electricity. So this is a really great benefit and 
brains also have a range of other educational content that you can find on their blog, as well as their insights dashboard, which you can use to keep an eye on the Bitcoin mining market and see how things are. Are we still in capitulation? What's going on with the hash rate? And you can also do profitability calculations there also. So that website is brains.com. Go and check it out. And now back to the show. Sure. And so I think we are still in a transition phase. The world is transitioning into Bitcoin. Obviously, you and I are bullish on Bitcoin for obvious reasons, but the rest of the world is not seeing it like you and I do. And we're going through this transition phase. And there might be a lot of people who would argue that, let's say you set up a business and you only take Bitcoin for payment. Well, you might be really restricting your potential customer base by doing that. And as soon as you now have, okay, well, we're going to do Bitcoin and fiat payment, ah, boom. Now we're reopening that fiat door. Now you might need to have hmm. some kind of incorporation or it, it's in your personal legal name and you might need a bank account. You might need some kind of payment processor, all of that in the normie world. Whereas if you were just Bitcoin only, zero fiat, you don't have to do that. So I guess it's still managing that transition over, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that'll, that'll be very, very gradual. I tend to think, yeah, I, I just tend to be quite... I don't know if pessimistic is exactly the right word, but I'm not incredibly optimistic that it's going to happen any day now. Um, I think there, there's there's two interesting comments on on that kind of dynamic and how I maybe expect that to change or like why I expect it to change. Neither of which make me like particularly, you know, super optimistic, but it's, you know, it's kind of, it's getting there. The momentum is there. One of them is that I, I actually don't think it's so bad I mean, obviously, you kind of have to do it in practice, but in theory, I don't think it's even that bad accepting both fiat and Bitcoin because we're we're getting to a point, and a lot of places we're already at this point where the fact of offering both can actually kind of be its own marketing because it's just fundamentally, if you're paying with Lightning, basically, is what this comes down to, it's so, so much cheaper, especially if the items are smaller ticket or lower margin or both. It is so much cheaper to accept the payment in Lightning, even if you intend to just convert it into fiat. Like this is the pitch that I think is being made and will start to be made a lot more just to regular businesses who are contemplating this and like thinking, you know, oh, what should I do about Bitcoin? Like this is kind of an obvious thing. Accept payment in Lightning, even if you don't intend to stack sats because you can cut out interchange fees, which is like, I don't want to go off on this for too long, but there is a tangent that is maybe worth picking at because I think the more you tug at that thread, the more interesting it becomes. And that the reason that difference exists in the first place, to my mind, fundamentally comes down to fiat being credit, right? The reason that there are like interchange fees exist in the first place, the reason that if when you make a credit card transaction, there are at least four intermediaries who are all doing different things and are all profiting from taking credit risk, even though like ostensibly there's no credit involved in this, but there has to be to make a payment, right? That's radically different to Bitcoin, which is nobody's liability, right? It's just an asset. It's a bearer asset. You transfer it instantly. That's amazing. So back to the, the idea of the, the business, if they accept both fiat and Bitcoin, but for example, they offer you sats back if you pay with Lightning, or they just make it cheaper <laughs> if you pay with Lightning, that's actually, that's like pretty good. I approve of that. If the, if the alternative is just that they don't do it at all, because like, why would, I don't know, McDonald's only take Bitcoin? Like that would be insane strategically for them. Whereas this, I think, is probably going to start to happen. The other one is, um, it's not quite as exciting as that. It's not something I think sort of regular users are going to see, but there needs to be, and, and there is, uh, this isn't a complaint. This is just kind of, you know, forward looking. There needs to be a lot more, let's say, uh, 
options to move liabilities into Bitcoin as well. Because I think the main reason that this doesn't happen for people who want to do it, which is obviously it's a kind of a tiny minority who want to do it, but the main reason that they, they're just not really in a position to do it is that they have dollar liabilities in the first place. Like they, and that can come from all sorts of reasons. You know, if you have an established business, it's, it's kind of back to the same thing, but it's the reason that even if you accept lightning, you might want to then just, you know, put it back into dollars right away because you have to pay off your lease or your, you know, whatever debt you have, you know, blah, 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 blah. But the more that that can be stripped out, the more people are freed up to, to actually start. And this is now basically what I'm getting at here is that it will slowly become a unit of account as well. But I'm thinking, you know, what's necessary for people to treat it that way. Um, and I think, yeah, being able to denominate liabilities in Bitcoin is important too. Right. And I think at this point, of course, there are some individuals and some services literally priced in Bitcoin. And I don't mean just like the USD value auto converted to Bitcoin at the time you buy it, like literally the service is denominated and priced in Bitcoin, but that's very few. Let's say some of the CoinJoin um, services, maybe certain individuals in the space who are charging a certain Bitcoin rate. Uh, but generally speaking, the world right now is operating mostly in terms of USD pricing, or obviously depending on which country you're in. But that's kind of currently where we are. But of course, where, where are we going? I, I, I do believe. Yeah, we just got to yeah. chip away at that, basically. <laughs> I mean, you can, only, you can kind of think of, you can work backwards to what I just said as like fundamentally what needs to be tackled and that it's only okay to price things, or I don't mean okay in like a moral sense. It's only uh, prudent to price things in Bitcoin if the costs are also in Bitcoin. Hardly anybody's costs are in Bitcoin. The reason is that partly, hardly anybody's willing to accept Bitcoin. So that's kind of circular. But I think even more fundamentally than that, people don't tend to think of Bitcoin as their unit of account for capital formation. So they don't have the funds to afford costs in Bitcoin in the first place. And the reason they don't do that is because they don't have Bitcoin denominated liabilities. Their funding is all in dollars, which means their investment is all in dollars, which doesn't completely mean, but strongly suggests their costs will be in dollars. And by the time you've gone through all of that, like you kind of have to charge in dollars. So, um, but this this can be chipped away at. Yeah, but part of that is this initial volatility. I know yeah. even in the earlier days, there was um, the infamous Mircea Popescu had uh, this MPEX or some exchange. This is like 2012 days or so and the price was something like i can't remember exactly i think it was like 50 bitcoin or five bitcoin to even sign up to the exchange right <laughs> and it was like literally a bitcoin denominated thing so you know there have been people who've tried these things and because of the volatility and because of people's expectation about where this is going if they like if you believe this thing is going to millions of dollars per coin of course that's going to change your willingness to denominate long-term things in yeah. that well there's there's another interesting reason that this could come about though and it's kind of scary in a way it's a bit dystopian if you run it out far enough but we could well end up in a point so this is picking up on the volatility point right and a kind of a cheeky retort to that because i don't i don't think currently all that many people would say this seriously but i guess my point is like this will become more serious is that okay but is bitcoin volatile in dollars or is dollars volatile in bitcoin and if there's enough or maybe dollars is like the worst example but we you know whatever the local currency is whatever your obvious alternative that you want to price things in if that becomes it was not volatile if it hyperinflates, like it only goes in one direction right <laughs> if that if it hyperinflates enough maybe you decide i'm I, I can't risk taking that i'm only taking payment in bitcoin and then that 
doesn't solve exactly, but it starts to unwind the network effect at the heart of one of the problems I raised, which is that, you know, as much as you'd love to pay your costs in Bitcoin, if you're a business, right, so that that then enables you to charge in Bitcoin, uh, no one else will accept your Bitcoin payment. That's exactly how that, I think, will start to unwind because it, it then flips and like, well, no one wants your, oh, that's a good example. I always forget the names of currencies, like the Bolivar, I guess, right? Like no one wants to be paid in Bolivars in the first place. They want Bitcoin. So perfect. Let's all get on a Bitcoin standard. Yeah, of course. I think the likely scenario, at least as I see it, is that a lot of the world uh, will move to the USD. Uh, we're seeing this even in places like Argentina, where they've had you know every decade mm. or so they have this kind of monetary crisis, high inflation. So they already they already know the drill. They already kind of go to yeah. USD. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think a lot so of the oh, rest not of this again. Yeah, they're kind of like, well, okay, my dad had to do this, my granddad had to do this. Okay, this is what I'm going to do. And of course, yeah, there's people doing like stablecoin stuff, of course. But I think if I had to look at where I think it's likely, it's you know, people people will go to the USD, but then eventually, just in the same way that the world is dollarizing, people will Bitcoinize because they'll just see, hey, this is even better. So I think it'll just take time, though. But also, I wanted to chat with you about uh, some of the yield questions, because obviously, <laughs> yeah. um, this is something you wrote about, and I had uh, Big Al on to chat about it as well. Um, but yeah, I want to get your thoughts on it as well, in terms of this whole question about DeFi and yields and things like this. So do you want to just give us a, a bit of a, an overview on you know where your head is at on quote-unquote DeFi uh, these days? Oh, sure. Yeah, that, that's maybe an interesting place to start. Um, so I'm not exactly sure where my head is at, to be honest, because there's th this might scandalize some of your, your listeners. Uh, there are some aspects of it that I'm, I guess, impressed by, given all the chaos lately. And I do think it's important to get that out of the way. Um, but only to then explain why it's like actually not that big a deal anyway. Um, what, what I mean by that is the the various sort of legitimately decentralized components of this uh, that that sort of stood up that didn't that didn't freeze. So as you were saying, you were saying there were some areas that are actually decentralized, or what were you getting at? Well, yes and no. So. I think it's worth distinguishing. So this is something that the the more crypto centric people were getting really agitated about. That the likes of um, Celsius, in particular, uh, BlockFi, I forget the uh, Three Arrows, Genesis. There may have been more Voyager. Voyager, I think them, yeah. yeah. Um, that they're not. They're clearly centralized, right? They're uh, they're not really decentralized finance. Um, they don't have any of the alleged benefits of decentralized finance in terms of the. Uh, the enforceability of the contracts and the, you know, the transparency is what's actually happening on their books. And I think that that is important to distinguish. Like, yes, they are basically just probably illegal banks, effectively. <laughs> um, not, not that I care. I, even that I kind of hesitate with because when I say that, my point isn't, oh, they should have been regulated away. It's more just like use the right words, right? They were banks. They were fractional reserve banks, and but in assets that have no lender of last resort. So they are now insolvent. So they're quite different from DeFi. Uh, and the other thing that they like to tout, which so this is the one thing that I think is worth giving credit to, that if something similar were to have happened in TradFi, even though you know there would have been like lender of last resort stuff going on to backstop it all, it's highly likely that credit markets would just have frozen, and it and it, there would have been contagion basically. Whereas here, it, it's kind of like interestingly. Um, 
free, I guess. We saw a legitimately free market in credit creation, in, well, in fractional reserve banking. And, you know, it's kind of Bitcoiners could have told you it was a terrible idea. But now we know it's a terrible idea because they're actually all now bankrupt. But at the same time, the lending protocols that were part of this, obviously not a huge part, they were fully functioning. Right. They, they just kept going. Nobody cared. Every contract was was honored. Every payout was made, blah, 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 blah. So that is worth acknowledging solely to then be accurate in what I think is an even more stinging critique, which is that the fact that they didn't break is not the same as saying they're useful. So this is I, I think a good example of this in like a TradFi world would be something like the fact that. I don't know what's something obviously for like Enron, let's say, right? The fact that the trading of Enron shares on, I assume it was on the New York Stock Exchange. I don't actually remember, but the fact that the trading of those shares on the exchange was, you know, facilitated, like all the trades were made, it kept going right until it, you know, completely fell apart. That doesn't really reflect well on anybody or anything. It, it doesn't. It also doesn't indict the New York Stock Exchange, right? In the same way that none of this, although I, I think it does, but for a reason I'll get to in a minute. None of what I've said so far indicts uh, DeFi lending protocols. But it's not really a good thing either. All, all it's demonstrating is that they were used to finance fraud, right? And so this is where you do start to indict them. The reason they were used to finance fraud is because they can't be used to finance anything else. There isn't actually any use case for the services that they're providing. So the fact that they work is like, you know, work in quotation marks is technically interesting and perhaps praiseworthy in contrast to what would certainly have happened in TradFi. But that's like the, honestly, the best you can say about it. And I then go further to come back to this question of, you know, what, where's my head out on DeFi and where does the yield come from, right? Is that the reason that these uh, CFI, basically like Celsius, everybody else, I've always, I have to think about what their names even are in the first place, but they're not quite DeFi, CFI people. The reason they were able to do that in the first place, like the reason there was this, I guess, market to be made, like there was this entrepreneurial, <laughs> entrepreneurial activity with the, you know, doing fractional reserve banking and these assets is that underlying it all is actually DeFi assets that are designed in such a way to spout off non-existent yield that these banks then think the banks then think that they can intermediate at a profit. And it turns out they can't because one fractional reserve banking doesn't really work anyway, as we could have told them, but they now know. But two, it especially doesn't work if the assets themselves are like fundamentally insolvent. It, it, it doesn't even really matter that the banks... I know, maybe another way of putting this right is that fractional reserve banking can work until it doesn't work, right? It can, it's the same kind of thing. It's like the fact that it didn't break doesn't is like not really that good a thing because it will eventually break. And so that's kind of where my head is at, that this one little glimmer of like, oh, that was kind of cool. Like, okay, good for you. But ultimately, you still caused this problem. So calm down. Right. And so I guess the, so obviously I, I'm Bitcoin only, but let's say the steel man, it might be something like. <laughs> oh, so, so am I, just yeah. to be clear. Uh, <laughs> but the steel man might be something like, oh, but look, Alan, I was able to use these so-called decentralized lending protocols mm -hmm. to retain my exposure to a given shitcoin. And 
also, quote unquote, unlock some of the value, right? So instead of me mm-hmm. selling that coin, I was able to, let's say, put up 200% collateral and borrow against it to buy my Lambo or my car or whatever, right? Like that's <laughs> yeah. the, I guess that's maybe that that's in there. They're saying that's the use. That's where the yield is coming from because, you know, I, you know, I'm um, borrowing against my coins, mm-hmm. uh, against my shit yeah. coins. No, that's, I mean, that it may be correct that, you know, that may have happened to somebody, but I, I would just prefer that people are honest about what, I don't know what they're talking about, like what these assets even are in the first place. And so I, I think that by far the cleanest way to describe this and just to conceive of all of it is something that I owe to Elise Kali, who I'm sure, I'm sure you know, I'm sure many of your listeners know. And I remember when she said this to me, it just kind of, everything just clicked into place. I'm like, yes, that is the perfect way of thinking about it. That is wonderfully concise. And it's that everything you just said, while true, is gambling, Right. And I think this is a useful framework because it's not completely dismissive, right? Gambling is a real thing, right? Gambling is a real industry. There's a supply and a demand for this service and it creates assets that have financial value, right? And you could even have, I mean, it probably technically doesn't quite make sense, but you could do like cool equivalent financial engineering to the to the legitimately DeFi protocols, but it wouldn't. As far as I'm concerned, it wouldn't matter because it's not capital accumulation. I think the problem here is that one, it's gambling. So it is real. It's just stupid. But it's it's gambling that is sort of masquerading as capital accumulation. That's, I think, the best framework, not only to conceive of some of its benefits, but to then articulate why it very quickly gets into being basically fraudulent at times too. Yeah, gotcha. And I guess let me summarize a few things there. So in in a way, we could think of it like it's kind of almost this Rube Goldberg machine, but at the same time, it's a machine that enables mass gambling and leverage. And effectively, without people understanding, in some cases, and maybe in other cases, they do understand what was going on, there was actually just a, a, a whole load of leverage, and it was just basically a house of cards. And so in even in my steel man shitcoiner steel man example where let's say i'm some whatever some shitcoiner who wants to borrow against these coins where's like because i'm paying back yield for that i'm paying back interest somehow where is that coming from now if i have a job if i have some productive business enterprise and then okay i'm paying it back with that but i think that's maybe that's ultimately the point of where it's going to because it's not that they're well, I wonder. I mean, maybe there would be, this would be an interesting question. Are there DeFi loans that have been successfully made to an entrepreneur who actually used that capital to go and do a business and make some return and then pay back the loan successfully? Because that would be, I guess, theoretically, that would be a refutation of this idea, right? I don't think it happening once would be a sufficient reputation. Right. It, it would force you, well, me, I guess it would force me to not be quite so damning and to kind of like nudge myself to be a bit more open-minded about it, I guess. But I think it's like, you have to treat it on a value-weighted basis. Of course, of course. yeah. Because if there's one guy who made it work, but then like 99% of them all just got wrecked on shitcoin not, gambling. Not just not just because of, I think that, that attitude, which I also share, by the way, that is a valid way of thinking about it. But that's almost like, a, you know, what is the fairest way to represent this or something? That's valid that's that's helpful to keep in mind but i mean something more specific than that and i think it's tied to the yield right so it's back to this question of where does the yield come from that the uh, th- this is what i'm kind of in a very roundabout way blaming the DeFi stuff for even though some of the uh, financial engineering in the middle of it was cool and worked 
the the CFI stuff that blew up is predicated on these yields. Like what they were doing is basically skimming interest, right? They were they were seeing there's you know different marketplaces for different kinds of yield, and they were borrowing at one interest rate and lending at another interest rate, and it was a complete disaster. But that kind of activity is what's propping all of this up in the first place because <laughs> there's no yield. So back to the example of the one guy who actually did something legitimate. Good for him. But he was in a position to do that in the first place because of all this bullshit yield that that ultimately the other thing you've got to point out, right, is it's all coming from from VC. Like that's what props it up. And even there, I need to do this like VC because it's not a venture capitalist investment. It's like a, an equity infusion into a fundamentally insolvent enterprise or something. So like that is required for the one guy to do the one good thing. That's why I think the value weighting is more important. It needs to be many more than just one guy for this to turn around. Of course, yeah. And so I guess if we were to sort of look on, let's say, some of the different articles where people are looking at, okay, where is the yield coming from? They're saying, oh, look, some of these people are, you know, they're um, loaning out to short traders. And so this might be, you know, let's say on Bitfinex or one of these other exchanges, there is actually a, a component there where they are paying interest. But again... That comes back to the leverage component of it. Oh, sure. But I mean, that, that argument is even more confused, though, because this is like, this is now making analogies to TradFi that the fact of making the analogy in the first place demonstrates the person saying it doesn't understand what's happening in the thing they're comparing it to. So that we, we say this and we go into more detail in this in section four of Only Strong Survive. If people want to go back into that. I won't like recite the whole thing now. But, but one of the things we say, though, is that in, in TradFi, right, in some or other way, everything is, in fact, priced on yield because there are real returns on capital. And, you know, there's obviously exceptions to that. So, like, you know, maybe it's, it's, it's uh, speculative yield. Like, you think the yield is going to come one day, even if it's not coming now. Maybe it's derivative. So, like, literally a derivative or it's like options or, or like a short is kind of like that. But actually, and that, that's a perfect lead into this, that everything that is derivative that isn't itself just straight up like it's a bond that's a yield it's an equity that's a yield everything that has some kind of derivative value the reason it will have any value and also i guess you could say like the social utility of it like why it's why it's a good thing that these things exist in tradfi for the most part <laughs> um is that it helps you price the actually yielding assets properly and if you if you sort of reverse engineer why a short say or an option ought to have any value in the first place it comes back to there being a yield somewhere <laughs> that people are just disagreeing about how to price and so incorporating that into defi where once again there are no yields <laughs> doesn't make any sense it or it's the sense it tries to make is just obviously circular it's like it and again it's back to this like it's back to this question of financial engineering where um, I can totally see, like, in the example you were talking about, it was kind of obviously centralized anyway in terms of what these pseudo banks were doing. But for the sake of argument, you, I, I don't see why you couldn't have, like, some DeFi protocol, like, legitimately DeFi protocol that just enabled shorting or, like, set up. This probably exists, for all I know. Like, gave you direct exposure to the prices of other DeFi assets. And that could work, <laughs> but... It doesn't matter because none of the value should exist in the first place. 
So I guess the other way to think of it, and I think to Elisa's point, as many of us have been saying for a while, is that this is almost like a decentralized casino. There's just a, you know, if you sort of put a box around these different elements, and some of that includes some of these CFI institutions, some of that may even include some of the leverage trading exchanges or shitcoin casinos, as they are colloquially, and uh, some of the so-called decentralized protocols. You put a box around all of this, it kind of functions like a decentralized casino, and people turn up to the casino. And they just want to gamble. And this is their way of gambling because maybe they don't want to go to Las Vegas or Macau. Yeah, well, I mean, that's it's pretty obviously true, I think, in the majority of the of the use cases. Right. And that it's I don't think it's even that they can't be bothered going. It's that there's like no barriers to entry here. Yeah. Right. And potentially more of a multiple possible. Right. Like if they because yeah, the way yeah. they're sold on this, obviously, uh, the marks, the retail marks are sold on this is like, oh, I'll put in a small amount and you're getting on on, on the ground floor and maybe you'll hit a, a 10x, a 50x or a 100x mm-hmm. if you're really lucky. And then I think and I think that's that's exactly the relevance of the point I made a few minutes ago about how it's fundamentally gambling, but it's masquerading as capital formation. Like when you go to just a regular casino, right, you go to Vegas, you go to Mackay, whatever you well, maybe this isn't true for everybody, but in theory, you should understand the odds, right? You should know that the house always wins, right? And, and like, maybe you'll get lucky and, you know, that's fine. But like in aggregate, obviously, you're not going to like that. Your, your expected return is negative. Is I think most people know this and, and they do it as entertainment, right? They're not doing it to like, hopefully, <laughs> they're not doing it to try to get a good return, right? Because they know that the mean return is negative. Whereas in this case, that is at best ignored and at worst lied about because it is it is communicated as capital formation. And that's that's fraud, basically. That's I, I can't think of any other nicer way of putting it. It's of course. Just, it's lying for money. <laughs> Yeah, and of course, and then you layer on these other aspects where, let's say, insiders and influencers get paid to promote these random altcoins or they get the sweetheart deal, they get the friends and family rate um, to buy whatever these tokens are at a cheap price and then obviously dump it onto retail at a much more inflated price. So you you layer all of that on and it's not just simply like going to a casino. It's not just like going to Las Vegas and playing roulette or whatever. So I think those are interesting points to consider in terms of DeFi critique. And so hopefully that's been educational or informative for listeners. I also wanted to chat, I thought there was a really interesting uh, point you were talking about in the book, where you were talking a little bit about how Bitcoin as a market is deepening over time. And so uh, I'm not sure if this was yourself or your co-author who wrote this, but you were saying this idea that, look, MicroStrategy could not have done what they did a year earlier and that Apple likely can't even take a big position yet. Yeah, so that's, that, that's I mean, hopefully that's just kind of true anyway. Um, and it reflects more people, you know, at the, at the very least, it reflects more people being aware of Bitcoin and kind of interested in it as a financial asset, which I, I guess is a good thing. The, the reason we make that distinction, though, so deepness of the market rather than just price is that they're not necessarily the same thing, right? Deepness refers to, or depth, sorry, uh, depth refers to uh, the the volume of trading going on, but it may still be happening at the same price, right? So you could, I just completely make these numbers up, I have no idea if they're accurate, but you could have 10 million, say, dollars of trading a day uh, at whatever the price is now. You could also have $100 million of trading a day at whatever the price is now. I think if I remember that part of the book accurately, where we where we do bring this up, I think the point we're making is that depth is also helpful in addition to price and probably drives price in the long run. 
one reason this actually this links back really nicely to something we were mentioning maybe uh, 20 minutes ago 30 minutes ago one reason being that it enables more financial services around bitcoin to be built the most obvious one and i think we do say this at exactly this point the most obvious one being strike right there's i don't need to like go through strike's entire business model now but just kind of in the abstract the ability to so what depth does in the market for like Bitcoin to US dollars is relatively speaking to like, you know, more depth versus less. Uh, it just makes it easier for people to trade in and out without worrying about volatility. I think that's maybe the key thing. So the deeper these markets get, the more feasible it is for maybe a different example from Strike actually, uh, but another one that we mentioned before, the more feasible it is for businesses to accept Bitcoin payment even if they don't intend to sack sats, they just want to convert it immediately into dollars, the deeper the market for that is, the less risky, the less prudent. And, you know, obviously you can argue that, well, actually the least risky thing is just to buy Bitcoin. But like, we're back to this, you know, what are the stepping stones to get there? Uh, this, I think, is a, is a crucial one. Yeah. And on top of that, it helps in terms of if you have, let's say you have an employee in these other countries. Well, now if you're paying that employee, then they might find it easier to, let's say they need to sell some Bitcoin for fiat mm -hmm. or to mm -hmm. you know, locally and to have well-built peer-to-peer markets. Now in many countries, depends depends where you are, which cities you're in, but there's normally some kind of Telegram chat room or WhatsApp chat room where people are doing peer-to-peer -peer stuff uh, or even it just finding the local exchange and doing it that way or even at the local bitcoin meetup and so this all grows over time and so i think that's really the sense in which this network effect is growing or that's one main one of course there's all the other ones the developers the miners the you know the services the merchants all of these uh aspects that are growing and uh it reinforcing each yeah. other I, th I think another way another interesting way of thinking about this exact point is just that don't even need to talk about like market depth necessarily just something like you know ease of getting in and out of the asset say because that's ultimately what depth does for you uh, but there's lots of other things that do that too um what anything that helps in that respect does pretty much immediately is make it easier to use um i'm sure your listeners will be familiar with this terminology makes it easier to use bitcoin the network rather than committing to using bitcoin the asset that can be disappointing in some respects because again it's back to this thing about like well you should really just be stacking sats like that's that's the best thing to do but again if if, if that's step one if you're going from literally nothing at all it's like do i want to use paypal or do i want to use strike or like you know do i want um reward points on my amex or do i want sats back because i'm using uh i don't know like uh, like the bolt card for example that's a great first step. Like people getting used to the benefits of Bitcoin, the network is an excellent way to eventually nudge them towards Bitcoin, the asset. So it's it's something to be happy about with a sufficiently well low time preference, I guess, right? Like in the long run, this is going to be a good thing. Yeah, of course. And so I think it's, it's just fascinating to see um, how it's growing over time. And I think even in terms of educational material out there, right? Like it just because Bitcoin has been around now for 12, 13 years, there's just material out there. So people have some awareness of how to do these things. It all grows and builds. I think we've seen some people kind of take a detour into the stablecoin world. Of course, I'd rather people just go straight to Bitcoin, of course. Um, but, you know, it takes time. And I think that's that's sort of at the end of the day, that's that's where it's going. And I, yeah, I think that's probably uh, a good spot to finish up there. But Alan, if you have any closing thoughts for listeners uh, on our discussion about 
you know, capital and uh, the problems of DeFi and uh, anything else you wanted to touch on as we finish up? Oh, closing thoughts. Uh, I don't know. Buy the book, I guess. Or no, don't even buy the book. Just get the book. It's free. You can just go to my pinned tweet and find it completely for free. Free as in freedom and as in beer. Fantastic. Well, listeners, get uh, get on, follow Alan on Twitter. His handle is uh, at AlanF32. I'll put all the links in the show notes as well. And, you know, either buy or get his book for free, Bitcoin is Venice. And of course, I'll link to Only the Strong Survive. Great. Alan, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. Just a reminder, if you're enjoying the show, make sure to leave a review so that other people can find it. Get the show notes at stefanlevera.com slash 396. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the Citadels.